error never shows itself in its naked reality in order not to be discovered. On the contrary, it dresses elegantly so that the unwary may be led to believe that it is more truthful than truth itself. This is a quote that's attributed to uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, who in his time was uh, fighting a variety of different false teachings. Uh, it was during the life of Irenaeus that the Apostles' Creed was written. Uh, the church needed to take a stand against uh, false teachings of the Gnostics and of um, Marcion, who had developed their own ideas of who God was, how everything was created, and then how that impacted all of life and salvation. And these false teachings were slick and deceiving. The most effective lies, the lies that are the, the easiest to believe are the lies that are the closest to the truth. They're the ones that are most deceptive. Second Corinthians 11.14 says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. The, the reason why a temptation is tempting is because it looks good. It looks like it has value. It looks like it's worthwhile. It promises you something and you think it, it might be able to deliver. It, it might come through on its promise. It, it, may, it might even look like the right thing to do. It comes in the form of angel of light, but really it's from the devil. Uh, he's been a liar from the very beginning. And so during the time of Irenaeus, the Apostles' Creed was written as a summary of core doctrinal beliefs in the Christian faith and that fought against what the Gnostics and what Marcion taught. And this would help people to not be swayed by deceptive ideas, but to hold fast to the truth, to stand firm. Without correct doctrine, there is no standing firm in the Lord. It's impossible to stand firm in the Lord without correct doctrine. Last time that we were in Philippians, we defined standing firm in the Lord as holding to correct doctrine and having that correct doctrine lead you toward correct living. So you can say that you believe in correct doctrine, but if it doesn't change your life, then you're not standing firm in it. In fact, that's no different than what, what the demons do. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And the demons are actively opposing God, even though they know the truth. And so truly standing firm in the faith will result in a changed life as one has a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so without correct doctrine, it is impossible uh, to live in a way that truly honors the Lord. So the church is continuously facing an onslaught of opposing worldviews and opposing ideas that the world presents us as truth and presents us as you need this in order to live a flourishing life. But this story, the fact that there are opposing worldviews and ideas, that is not new. It's a story that keeps happening. It began at the very beginning Adam and Eve were faced with the question in the Garden of Eden, did God really say? Did God really say? And so we may have new types of ideas being thrown to us by the culture, but what it really all boils down to is, is did God really say? And so we see this old tactic uh, dressed up with these new ideas that 
can look good, but lead to death. We might not be facing the same types of philosophies that the early church was uh, engaging with, but we still have our own battle, our our own temptations and false theology in our own day, um, just like Arrhenius faced. And so we find ourselves in Philippians 4. Paul has commanded the Philippian church to stand firm in the Lord, and after this, he provides them with some practical instruction. So this morning, we're, as we continue thinking about standing firm in the Lord and how this practically looks like in our life, we're going to see three imperatives, so three commands, and they're very countercultural. And we will also see a promise for those who are in Christ. So if you haven't already, turn to Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the, in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, again, I ask that you provide us with uh, the truth, that you'd open our eyes and ears, that we would be drawn to you, that we'd be convicted to the heart, that you give us the power and the ability to uh, turn away from uh, our sin and then to turn towards you. Amen. So first of all, stand firm in the Lord by rejoicing in the Lord. It says, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We, we have a command to rejoice. And there, there are times in life where rejoicing comes very naturally uh, as an outward expression of our joy and delight. So when, when that thing goes really well, uh, when you get that job promotion, when there's a marriage, when there's a new baby, there, there's things that naturally, there, there's rejoicing. There's times that this comes naturally and easily. And there are times that it doesn't come as naturally and easy as well. Joy is a major theme in this letter that Paul has written to the Philippians. And Paul began the letter by telling the church that as he prays for them, he prays for them in joy. Uh, he also speaks of people proclaiming Christ out of envy and rivalry, but he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Uh, among a number of uh, other references to rejoicing and joy, uh, Paul states in, in chapter 2, verse 2, what would complete his joy is if the church was of the same mind and the same love. Uh, they, that they would be living a life, imitating the life of Christ, uh, taking on the mind of Christ, living in humility and love towards one another. So how is it that in this letter, uh, references joy and rejoicing a lot, Paul 
He's writing this in prison. He's not in a great situation, personally. And yet, he does not seem to be lacking in joy. It's clear that he has joy even in his suffering. He's also telling the church to rejoice always. How is that possible? It's possible because our joy is not based upon circumstance, but upon Christ. So the world and the culture around us opposes this mentality of joy and rejoicing. Some opposing questions that may arise would be, why would you ever rejoice in a circumstance that is not good for you? Um, How can you rejoice if you are experiencing suffering? How can you rejoice if you were wronged? To rejoice in these times would be foolish. They might say, rejoice in the Lord always? That's, Paul, that's insensitive. Don't you know what people are going through in their life? The Christian is able to rejoice always because the object of our ultimate joy is Christ. The foundational centerpiece of our joy and our rejoicing is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is a, is a foundation, a, a cornerstone that will not fall or crumble under any weight that is placed upon him. Jesus is a foundation that will not be moved. In fact, it is in him that everything holds together. If our joy, our rejoicing, is founded upon our circumstances or our relationships or our finances, or our job situation, or anything material, eventually we will find that our life will crumble. Our circumstances are always changing. And circumstances, they're, they're a terrible foundation to build your life and joy upon. Sometimes they change for the better, and praise God for that. And sometimes they change for the worse. And as soon as circumstances turn sour, and in many of these situations, we don't have the power to change that. As soon as it turns sour, then, if we are basing our joy upon that circumstance, we're we're in trouble. The joy disappears. It seems hopeless. But there is another place, other than circumstances, where we can have our joy. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. So, In the Lord is the key here to our rejoicing. And the reason that we can rejoice is because God himself, Jesus Christ, the creator of, of all things, took on flesh, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, in order to take the place of sinners. There's forgiveness of sin available to people like us for those who repent and believe upon, upon Jesus. Um, this overflowing grace of God, um, the love of God towards sinners, that even in our sin, Christ died for us. And this is why we can rejoice always, is because of the truth of the gospel. But because life can be difficult, we have to be reminded of this truth continually. To be reminded of the truth that there's something to rejoice about. Um, He says, again, I will say rejoice. Paul says it twice here. Uh, The Christian life is a life of rejoicing 
in the Lord even while we face trials of, of many kinds. And so if you are in Christ, then you have a true and, and lasting eternal hope that is yours and that cannot be taken from you. And that is, that is worth rejoicing about. And this is part of what it means to stand firm in the faith. The foundation of our life will not be moved even when the world around us is falling apart because our ultimate joy, our ultimate hope is in the Lord and not in anything else. Psalm 46 beautifully illustrates, uh, illustrates this. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, Though, it waters, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So even though there are giant shifts that happen in life around us, the, the earth giving way, it, may, it might feel like the earth itself has been pulled out underneath your feet and you're falling. The mountains themselves are being picked up and tossed into the sea. These, these are massive, cataclysmic events uh, in life. Even in these moments, God is the refuge and strength of his people. Uh, he is present and a help in our day of trouble. And we are able to rejoice in the Lord in, in who he is and what he has done. Rejoicing in his character, even though the world around us is, is falling apart. So the Christian is able to rejoice in whatever circumstance they find themselves in because true and lasting joy is found in Christ and not in anything else. Secondly, stand firm in the Lord by being reasonable and gentle. Stand firm in the Lord by being reasonable and gentle. Verse 5 says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. This is an interesting command to, to throw in here. Let your reason, reasonableness be known to everyone. So what, what is this reasonableness? And why does it need to be known? And what connection does this have with standing firm? I, I said to stand firm in the Lord by being reasonable and gentle. Uh, this word here for reasonableness in the verse, it is also translated as gentle. The NASB translation says, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. So Paul uses this word elsewhere to describe the character quality of those who are to be leaders in the church. 1 Timothy 3, 2-3 says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Not violent, but gentle. The gentleness is to mark an overseer in the church. And, and that is contrasted with, with the violence, with aggression. And this is particularly important uh, for leaders in the church as a person who is marked by aggression and violence would not be modeling the fruit of the Spirit uh, for the church. A violent person is someone who is showing that they are out for their own good, even at the expense of others. That, 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 is, that is a violent and aggressive uh, type of person. They're, they're willing to hurt, 
hurt another person in order to get what they want. They are driven by their selfish motives without the care uh, for people around them. So clearly this type of person shouldn't be a leader in any type of capacity, especially so in the church. Uh, This is the opposite of the the character of Christ, who laid down his life for the good of others. Uh, Jesus was willing to place himself in harm's way out of his love for others. But this command to be gentle, or reasonable, is also for all believers. The elders of the church will be held to a higher standard. And at the same time, Paul is commanding the Philippian church that they are to be gentle as well. Gentleness seeks after the the well-being of others, not just oneself. We are to consider what is in the best interest of, of others, and not only what's in my own best interest. Someone who is gentle will also be a a person who exhibits self-control. Paul uses this word again in Titus 3, 1 through 2, saying, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So we get a good picture of what goes along with this gentleness, uh, with this person, as they are ready to accomplish good works. Uh, They are gentle in their speech and not speaking uh, evil. Uh, They are wise in in that they avoid quarreling. They are courteous. Uh, This gentleness exhibits the wisdom of God. Uh, James 3.17 says, But the wisdom from from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Okay, so why is this gentleness to be known to everyone? So this is the character of Christ. We are to imitate Christ. Having this character with everyone shows integrity. This would mean that you aren't just wearing a mask when you come to church, being all churchy with your church friends, and then going home and going to work, your other friends that you have, and being a different person uh, with them. Um, That would be hypocrisy. Um, And that word hypocrite comes from uh, someone who's literally an actor, right? They've placed themselves in front of other people, and then when the show is done, they they take their mask off, and then they're, they're their true selves, To have integrity is to have the same character that marks all of your life, no matter what person you are with, Um, no matter what relationship that you're in. There's no putting on a mask, but instead uh, you live in your true character with everyone. Um, So what would it say about our heart and our character if the different people from the varying different places of our lives would not recognize us or didn't know who we were because with this group of people we act really differently than when we're with them. Um, it's, it's hypocrisy. It would say that we're not standing firm in the Lord. Um, something else has a hold of our heart. Something else is dictating our life, the, the way that we act instead of Christ. So our, our, 
our worlds colliding should not be a shock to the system because our character should be in the, the same in every circumstance, in every relationship that we have. So let your reasonableness, your gentleness, be known to all people. Let your Christ-like character be on display for all of your life in every relationship that you have. This gentleness also shows a trust in the Lord. The Lord is at hand. Paul says, the Lord is at hand. It is not up to us to execute judgment, revenge, vengeance. God knows what is happening in the world. He will bring judgment. It's not up to us to bring judgment. The Lord is at hand. Third, stand firm in the Lord by not being anxious. Stand firm in the Lord by not being anxious. Verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. This is a controversial statement in this day and age. Do not be anxious about anything. What is Paul saying here about anxiety? The command to not be anxious about anything is not a call for us to be indifferent or unfeeling or apathetic about life. God made us to be emotional people. He made us to care and to love. Um, Look at what Paul says about Timothy in chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Paul is commending Timothy to the church. He's excited about sending Timothy to the church. And part of the reason why is because Timothy has a genuine concern for the people. So that word for genuine concern, it's the same word that Paul uses in saying to not be anxious about anything. So Paul is encouraging a proper love, a proper and godly concern for people. It is godly. It's it's godly to care about people. It's godly to to love people. Uh, But we must be careful that we do not move into being controlled by a, a worry and anxiety. An inappropriate worry or anxiety is going to be characterized by being consumed with whatever that worry is. It will fill your mind. It will fill your time, your energy. It's a, it's a controlling factor in your life. And personally, when it comes to anxiety that I, I have in my own life, my, my mind t- tends to run to a bunch of different scenarios. Living in, living in the world of what-ifs. Um, and I can even have my emotions follow after the what-ifs that I'm thinking about. Um, it's an imaginary world. That, that world doesn't actually exist, uh, but we can become consumed by it. And ultimately, we're, we're trying to control the outcome of some situation in life that we don't have control over. God, God is a good God who can be trusted. 
And so we have this command from Jesus in Matthew 6 as well to not be anxious. And we have a command in, from Paul, Philippians 4, to not be anxious. This may sound insensitive, um, but it's actually hopeful. Um, we're not helpless to our thoughts and our worries. There is a solution that is available. Jesus says in Matthew 6.31, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Having our priorities in life set straight, seeking first the kingdom of God, it's going to help us with our struggle with worry and anxiety. Taking every thought captive, uh, making it submit to Christ, having our minds set upon eternity, the kingdom of God, what is the true purpose of life, which is to honor and glorify God. This helps us to keep ourselves from being controlled by worry by being controlled about what, what might happen in the future. Um, there is a call to trust in the goodness of God here. I mean, isn't it, it's a great comfort to know that the God knows what we need. Our Heavenly Father knows about our life and cares about our life. First uh, Peter 5, 6-7 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. This is who God is. This is his character. He has love and compassion for his people. He cares for you. And we can go to the Lord with our worry, with our anxiety. He will carry that burden. He cares for his people and he is in control. So I want to encourage you to, to trust in him in that. Paul provides the Philippian church with some other ways that uh, help us to combat anxiety. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So in everything, by prayer and supplication. So our, our, our culture makes fun of prayer. Uh, prayer is viewed as, it's sort of, it's sort of a, nice, it's a nice thing, um, but not something that actually brings about any change. That's what the culture would say. It's cute, it's nice, but what are you really going to do? Um, but God desires that we pray in everything. I mean, God cares about the details of your life. Uh, when you're healthy, when you're in a healthy relationship with somebody, you share your life with them. Uh, you share the details of your life. You share their heart, your heart with them. And God is trustworthy. He is faithful. Uh, he's calling us to be in a relationship with Him, and He's made that possible through, through Jesus Christ. Uh, he's calling us to be a people who pray uh, to look for Him, to look to Him for comfort, uh, look to Him for answers. And for Christians, God is his, his Father. Jesus, Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And a faithful Father cares for his children. And God is a faithful Father. 
He cares for His children. The Lord hears the cries of His children and He answers. And this doesn't always mean that we're going to get exactly what we want, but ultimately God knows what's best and what we need. And the way that we are to pray is with thanksgiving. I remember growing up, there was a kid's song that we would sing, and the lyrics were, A thankful heart is good medicine. A thankful heart is good medicine. It's true. Thankful, thanklessness leads to all sorts of, of lawlessness. Romans 1 verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The person who refuses to give thanks to God is, is being foolish. Their thinking has become futile. Their hearts are darkened. A, a quote that is often attributed to Thomas Watson says, Satan loves to fish in the troubled waters of a discontented heart. Why is that? How is it that being thankless could have such an impact on someone's life? A thankless person is not grateful. There's going to be complaining that's happening. There's a belief of deserving more. They should have more. Right? A thankful heart is a heart that's full of humility. It does not believe that they're deserving all these things that are, that are given to them. And so that's why they're giving thanks to what they receive, especially from God. Like, I don't deserve this. Thank you, Lord, for, for pro providing this. A thankful heart towards the Lord will look at all the aspects of life because in Christ all things hold together and give thanks for the good that God provides. The sun rises every morning and sets every night. Our, our heart is beating blood through our body. Our lungs are, are working. The rain falls on our crops and they grow. The Lord is providing. There are many things in life to have joy about, to be thankful about. And so give thanks. A thankful heart is a defense against worry and anxiety because a thankful heart is resting in the goodness of God's character. Someone who is consistently thanking God knows who he is and trusts in his character. Cultivate and train your mind to see things in life that you can thank God for. Practice this. Throughout the day, specifically be looking for things that you can thank God for. And this is going to help you to see beyond the circumstance of life that you might be anxious or worried about. So our three imperatives were to rejoice, be gentle, and to not be anxious. So what is the promise that goes with these things? So here's the promise, verse 7. In the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So for those who are in Christ, you've, you've repented and believed in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. You are able to have true peace. You are able to have true rest for your soul. This peace is a, a divine peace. It is a peace that comes from God. 
In the peace of God, it says. God is the God of true peace. Jesus himself is the Prince of Peace. Because we have Christ, we have the peace of God. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In 2 Corinthians 13.11 says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Our, our God is a God who does not leave or forsake his children. That he is a God of, of peace. He provides himself uh, to you. And this peace is beyond our understanding. Part of the reason why it's beyond our understanding is because we can have this peace in the moments and in the circumstances, the, the situations of our life where it makes sense to not have peace. Um, there is peace available when it would make sense to be worried and anxious. Um, and trust yourself to the care of the Lord, uh, knowing that He works all things out for the good of those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose that we would have an attitude of thanksgiving and gratitude to the Lord. And, and this contributes to the peace that we have in our life, a peace that is beyond what we can imagine or what we understand in our situation. And this peace guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Our hearts and minds are what the enemy is after. Um, the enemy desires that we would be in turmoil. The enemy desires that we would not be at peace. And in not being at peace, the enemy desires then that we would seek after peace in all of the wrong places. That instead of looking to Jesus Christ, that we would try and attempt to find peace in any, anything or anyone else. This is the desire of the enemy. That our hearts and minds would be fixed on anything other than the goodness and grace of God. It's this, the enemy's desire to distract our, our eyes from Christ. To keep us from having a heart for the Lord. To keep us from having a renewed mind. And so instead, remember the truth. The, the truth sets us free. There, there is hope because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And God shows his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To provide forgiveness of sin, providing the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, the peace of God for our souls. There is, there is rest for your soul that is available. This is an encouraging promise as we face all sorts of trials and, and temptations in life. The, the peace of God uh, can be with you. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we, we understand and know that we are people who have shaky knees uh, we need your help to stand firm. 
Lord, I ask that you would help us to be people who rejoice always. That we would keep our minds fixed upon the truth. That we would remember the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ. That we would remember the good news of the gospel. And in that, we would rejoice. And so, with whatever circumstance we would face or we find ourselves in, that we would have strength in that situation because of the gospel. And Lord, help us to be people as well that are people of integrity, uh, that we would be reasonable, that we would be gentle, that people would see our Christ-likeness, this work that you've been doing in our hearts and minds, Lord, that we would be consistent in our character uh, everywhere we go and with what, whatever uh, relationship we are, we are in, that we would be people who uh, are living out the, the, the character of, of Jesus Christ. Um, Lord, that we would be people of prayer, that in our anxiousness, uh, we would cast that upon you, that by your power and your grace that we would not be controlled by our worries or controlled by our anxieties, but instead would be um, slaves of righteousness. So Lord, we thank you that you are a God who provides peace, uh, that there is peace available for our souls, that there is a true rest to be found in, in Christ. I ask that you would remind us of this continually as we go throughout our life. We pray this in your name. Amen.